0: Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. A few weeks ago, Daniel shared from Ephesians, chapter 4. And the title of of tonight's study is God, Rich in Mercy. So God, Rich in Mercy. Daniel shared from chapter 4, and as he mentioned, um, Ephesians is is broken up rather nicely, or it can be, into two large sections. Chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 4 through 6, chapters 1 through 3, dealing with a lot of the um, doctrinal issues of our position with Christ, of our salvation, and of our redemption. In chapters 4 through 6, dealing with our everyday life, how we walk out that salvation, how we are to deal in our lives as believers, what it means when it comes to spiritual warfare, What it means when it comes to relationships in the household or in the workplace. And also what it means just to function as a member of the body of Christ. But here in these first three chapters, which is where we'll be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we see Paul dive deep into the matter of salvation. We see him look at the redemption that we have in Jesus and the blessing that we have as a result of the resurrection of Christ in chapter one. And in chapter two, we find ourselves here. He's going to talk about our former way of life as believers. Paul, here in this letter, is addressing those who have trusted in Jesus. He's writing to a church, uh, the the church uh, in Ephesus. And he's writing to encourage these believers to walk and chase after the Lord because they have been saved with such a great salvation. And as we come to chapter 2, we see the former way of life for the believer. Let's go ahead and read there verses 1 through 3. And actually, before I do, I do want to say uh, kind of the nature of the teaching tonight um, it's going to be information heavy and we'll get to the application more toward the end. But being that this is a, a really a doctrine heavy piece of scripture, there is plenty of application to come from this. But what I really want us to do is to consider the truths of the salvation that we have, the reality of our position in Christ, what we have been delivered from. And obviously that will inform how we walk out our lives, but allow the goodness and and the mercy of God to wash afresh over your mind tonight, because we have such a merciful God who has dealt so well with us in giving us this rich salvation. Let's begin there in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. so we see the believers form a way of life. He begins there, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. The you there is referring to the greater church there at Ephesus, those who had believed on Jesus, those who have been regenerated, those who were saved. And for many of us there, the he made alive, that, that section there is in italics, which means that it doesn't appear there in the original manuscripts. It's not that it's incorrect there because it kind of informs us of where Paul is going later in in this chapter. But he begins here with the plight of one who is not saved, which was the believer's former life before they trusted in Jesus. So he describes here in these first few verses the state of a person who has not been made alive by Christ in a spiritual sense. He says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. These two words are closely related, sins and trespasses. Um, Actually, in one sense, they are synonyms of one another. But what they really signify is an intentional life lived in rebellion against the Lord. Trespassing gives the idea of Uh, going against or stepping over a line that God had established. And we think about the commands of God and all the way back to the original sin in the garden, there was a line that Adam and Eve crossed that God had drawn for them, which introduced sin into the world. So this being a trespass and sins carrying the idea of missing the mark. Now this isn't just a You know, an accidental type missing the mark where somebody has errored in some way. It definitely is an error. But again, both of these have the idea of an intentional life lived in rebellion to God. Now, Paul says that as a result of these trespasses and sins, we were once dead. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now this speaks not of a physical death, but rather the spiritual status of a person as a result of the sin nature. I'll read to you a quote from a commentator. Dead here is understood not as a literal physical death, but in the metaphorical sense of alienation from the one who gives life. So these sins and these trespasses put us in a situation where we're dead. We are dead alienated from God, the one who gives life, and this is the result of the original sin in the garden. This sin passed down through the generations of man from Adam. Paul deals extensively with this in Romans chapter 5. I'll only read a few sections from this, verses 12 and parts of verse 17 and 18. In Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Moving down into verse 17, it says, By the one man's offense, death reigned through the one. In verse 18, as one, Through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Not only just for the believers who were in Ephesus who had been saved, but for all of humanity, we have been caught in our trespasses and sins. We are in direct opposition to God because of our shortcomings against His desire and His perfect will. Romans 3.23 says that the result of such a trespass, the result of such um, an encroachment on God's will is that death comes. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, and the wages of that trespass, as we read in Romans 6.23, is death, this spiritual separation from the Lord. So Paul in these verses brings forth three main vices that kept believers captive before they were made alive by Christ. These vices we all have dealt with, and these vices are ones that we have been delivered from. Paul will get to that, that deliverance in just a moment, but he wants us to understand the gravity of the situation apart from Christ. The first vice, he says there in verse 2 in which you once walked according to the course of this world. So, this idea of walking according to the course of of this world this vice now once he he says you once walked according to the course of this world meaning that for a period of time in the past now over with these believers had walked in this way it refers to those who are unregenerate and as this period was before conversion he says you walked according to the course of this world And as we're familiar, we talk about the Christian walk. And what do we mean when we say the Christian walk? Or what what do we mean when we talk in a spiritual sense of walking? Well, walking carries the idea of the way of living, how you're conducting your life, the way in which you make decisions, the decisions you make, the attitudes that you approach the world with, the patterns of living that you cultivate, and adherence to certain values. And the way in which we, before we believed in the Lord, were walking was according to the accepted, the celebrated and normative way of living that the world embraces, namely rebellion to the Lord. You see, those who walk according to the world go along with the desires and the values of the day. And some of these can be culture-specific, but most of them permeate every culture throughout the world. This, uh, you know, me-first type attitude, seeking what, what's best for me. And in, in every culture we see, uh, uh, you know, the man's idea of what sexuality should be, apart from what God has designed it to be. And immorality, not just in that sexual sense But in many arenas, as people conduct business, do they do it ethically or or unethically? As they approach family life and dealings with other people, do they do so in a moral way or not? And according to the pattern of this world, it certainly is not a moral way of conducting life. And you also think of conducting uh, someone's way, according to the course of this world, we think about Other world religions that say that someone can achieve nirvana or somebody can uh, achieve acceptance before God in the way that they live their life, that they can actually earn approval before some ultimate being. And these ways of life are accepted widely. And this is the course of the world. And this is the way that we once walked, the way that these believers to whom Paul is writing these things once walked. In the course of the world, no thought is given to the values of God, but only the values of the present age. As one commentator says, they go along with what is fashionable and acceptable and are not out of step with the rest of the world, hence they embrace temporal values. They are concerned only with activities and values of the present age and are not concerned with God's eternal values, or with the judgment to come. It's all about what seems right. So vice one is that they once walked according to the course of this world, and that's how we conducted our lives apart from Christ as well. But vice number two, Paul continues on and says that they once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. See, unbelievers walk according to the values and the norms of the world, as we've just discussed. But they do so because they are under the influence of the one who exerts influence over this world. And that would be, as Paul says, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Later on in chapter 6, he addresses uh, this same uh, individual, and we know him to be Satan. He is later uh, termed the devil in chapter 6 here in Ephesians, who is Satan. Well, he's the leader of the rebellion against God, and he has his influence over this world. And he's described as the prince of the power of the air. And in here, Prince denotes a sphere of influence in, in rulership. He has his way with this world to a degree. Ultimately, the Lord is sovereign over all things, but Satan has his influence, doesn't he? And the air, he says, the prince of the power of the air, it denotes a realm or a sphere of influence, namely, as one says, the place or sphere of the activity of the devil. So unbelievers now, and the believers before their conversion walked under the sway of the enemy and his devices, living according to his wishes for their lives. That's the way the world is conducting themselves now, under the sway of the enemy, under the sway of the wicked one. And Paul later warns the believers to remain aware that the war still rages on for believers. Right, The, the spirit and the flesh, the, the spirit is warring against the flesh and the enemy, and the enemy is still attempting to exert his influence and and. Uh, his attempt to exert authority over believers' lives. So, this is the way that unbelievers have conducted themselves in the world, according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. He continues, he says, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So, two vices the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. What's the third? We find this in. Verse three. He says, "Among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind." You see, the fulfillment in life before Jesus and his work in our hearts and lives, it, it came at the whim of our own desires and impulses. The flesh refers to the incline of the human heart to do what is contrary to God's desire and will. It reminds me of the time of the Judges. And a couple of times we read this, uh, like in Judges 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this is the way that we at one time conducted ourselves. We did what was right in our own eyes. We lived without regard to what God's values were. We lived according to, as Paul says, the flesh, and we fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind. There was no gate. There was no uh, restraint there in our pursuit of the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We chased full long after them, doing what was right in our own eyes. And Paul says that There is a result of these things. There is a result of our sins and our trespasses. There is a result of conducting oneself according to the patterns of this world. There is a result of someone conducting themselves according to the prince of the power of the air. And there is a result of someone who lives according to the lusts of our flesh. And the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What is that result? If we look there at the end of verse 3, he says, And we're by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, this phrase, children of wrath, alludes to the sin nature that was passed down through Adam. He, in a sense, is the father, had passed down sin to all of humanity. And down through the generations, we are reaping the consequence of our own sin natures as a result. Making us, at the base nature, children of wrath. What does that mean? It means that we are destined for the wrath of God, apart from a work of God, which we'll get to in a moment. Romans 1.18 says that God is bringing wrath against all unrighteousness. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, God's wrath comes against the unrighteous and the ungodly, of which we have all been a part. God's wrath will be poured out specifically upon the earth one day, against the sinful, rebellious kingdoms of this world that will gather in an audacious manner to attempt to defeat the king of kings. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all deserve his wrath. If we truly take an account of our plight before God, apart from any intervention from himself, we deserve God's wrath. Because of how we have transgressed against him. And how we have sinned against his holy standard. Our sin has put us in the position of being enemies of God himself. Enemies of God. Objects of his wrath and his righteous judgment. And see, this is our due reward for our sin against him. His righteous wrath. Now, God does not conduct wrath and justice like how we would perceive it. You know, because a lot of times we can, we can look at it through the lens of human anger or the idea of just getting back just for vengeance sake. But God's wrath and his dealing with man is according to his righteous judgment. It's a righteous ruling against our account because he is a just judge who will not let sin go unpunished. And we are deserving of it. It's a sentence that is true and accurate. The penalty of our sin is death and the wrath of God. We are by nature, or were before Christ, children of wrath. See, what Paul is doing here is he's reminding the believers of their plight before God. Before God raised them to new life in Jesus. Before they were changed and delivered from the penalty of their sin. Up until now, Paul has not mentioned, at least in this chapter, the redeeming work of God. Because in order to truly understand the beauty of God's grace and mercy, one must understand the desperate nature of the human condition. A condition that we cannot cure ourselves. A condition that we cannot lift ourselves out of. Not only is this a bad situation... But this situation cannot be resolved by human intelligence or ability. But I love the language that we have in these verses. He's writing to believers. He's writing saying that this was the way of life. And you see that these verbs all throughout this section are past tense. Meaning that since God had intervened, this was the former way of living for the believer. Something has changed. But up until this point, that was their plight. I'll read to you, it's somewhat of a lengthy quote. It's not extremely long, but I just love the way that this is put here, describing our past. This is by H.A. Ironside. It says, What a past! We were utterly beyond any ability to save ourselves. For a dead man can do nothing to improve his condition. And every unsaved person is dead, dead toward God, dead spiritually. If you are out of Christ, you have never had one pulse beat toward God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Sin has not only made man guilty so that he needs forgiveness, but sin has sunk the human race into a state of spiritual death so that men need forgiveness divine life. We are in need of divine life. And this is not a predicament that we can find ourselves and will ourselves out of. And that's when we read in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace Paul tells us that God did something to remedy the problem. God stepped in and made us alive together with Christ. As he goes on in verse 8, he says, This was received. We received this, um, this salvation through faith. But I love how he sharply transitions, but God. He transitions from the the previous way of life for the believer to this new way of life for the believer, and how the believer is raised to life in Christ, not as a result of his own works, but as a result of the mercy and the love of God. What a transition. Through the mercy and the great love of God, Jesus brought redemption and spiritual life to we who are dead in our trespasses and sins. He supernaturally infused life into us. Life that we could not bring uh, into ourselves. In verse 4, we have a description of God's character. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy. Here we have a human race. We who have plunged ourselves into rebellion against God. We've gone against him. We've gone against his desires. And yet toward us, toward you and me, God is rich in mercy. You know, I don't know about you, but when people wrong me, I, I, I need the instruction that says vengeance is the Lord's. Um, because I want to get back at people. If I'm hurt, I, I tend to want to inflict hurt on them. And how much more has our transgression done that to the Lord? And yet, He's rich in mercy. He delights in showing mercy to us. We, the ones who are dead in, in trespasses and sins, we who have grieved God with our sin, He shows us mercy toward us through His initiation and in the work of Christ. He has shown us His rich mercy. He has poured out his loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What a God we serve. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, O Lord, you are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. And later in that that Psalm, in verse 15, he says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious." Long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. Perhaps my favorite is Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. And I can't get out of my mind how um, Gail Irwin says this. You know, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in mercy. But this is God. He abounds in mercy toward us. He delights in showing mercy toward us. This rich mercy God has shown in having compassion upon us sinners who deserve just punishment for sin. I'll read to you another quote God's compassion or pity on the sinners who are suffering the calamity of sin. In this instance, the calamity of sin is not something undeserved. Yet God extends His mercy towards sinners because He loves them and knows that they are helplessly entrapped in their snare. What is mind blowing is that, yes, the Lord has extended to us mercy, but He initiated that. Jesus experienced the wrath of God on the cross in our place in order to show His mercy. In grace toward us. And that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfied the wrath of God, where Jesus on that cross became sin for us so that we might receive his righteousness. This is the mercy of God. On Jesus, the wrath of God was poured out so that the wrath of God would be withheld from us. Jesus took upon the wrath of God in his body on the cross so that we didn't have to. Now, as you think about your life? Think about the goodness of God throughout your life. How has God showed you compassion? Can you remember the day where he spoke to you and drew you to himself? I can remember that day when the Lord showed me my situation and my need for him, the mercy of God to speak to me in that moment, to draw me to himself. I wasn't deserving We weren't deserving, but God loves showing his mercy and his grace to us. Do you remember that overwhelming, cleansing, freeing, satisfying mercy of God? Oh, the mercy of God that he would have compassion on us. Paul continues, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. The vehicle that God has chosen to extend his love to us is mercy. is through the salvation that we have received. But the motive for him showing his mercy is the great love with which he has loved us. God has so loved the world. He has so loved you. He has so loved me. That even through the fall, he would bring about the plan of redemption for our benefit. The reason for this incredible outpouring of mercy upon sinners is that God has great love for us. Not only has God expressed how deep his love is for us, but he accomplished this work even when we were wanting nothing to do with him. In verse 5, it says, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us. Excuse me. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were still sinners, we didn't. We were seeking after him. And yet God died for us. uh, Christ died for us on that cross. What an amazing God. What amazing compassion and mercy that he has shown toward us. That He would not only take our sin, but He would rise and give us new life. Now Paul says that we have been made alive in Christ Jesus. He says God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul is speaking here of our identification with Christ In His resurrection. So Christ died for our sins. He took our sins upon himself. He died. Three days later, he rose victorious over death. And in that resurrection, spiritually, when we come to faith in Jesus, we are literally raised from the dead spiritually. Now, this isn't speaking of a physical resurrection, although that will happen, and there are other places in Scripture that talks about this. But when God had opened our eyes to the truth and and saved us, He created within us a new creation. He resurrected us spiritually. The old man gone, the new has come. And God is the one who has done this work in our hearts and lives. We have literally been raised with Christ. We have new life in Jesus, meaning that we have been created anew. Our desires are, are godly because the Spirit of God lives within us, and, and through Him we have life. But the one who has done this work, Paul makes this so clear, the one who has done this work is the Lord. He is the one who regenerates the soul of a man. And Paul kind of clarifies this with a parenthetical statement there and. In uh, verse 5, he says, "...by grace you have been saved." So Paul kind of expands on this idea a little bit that is inherent within the structure of the language in that God has made us alive. So he is the one who is doing this work within us in salvation. God is the one doing the life-giving. This is why he says, "...by grace you have been saved." Paul leaves no room for an alternative interpretation of the salvation process. It's done by God, not by the works of man. Now, as we dive a little bit deeper, let's have a little bit of a grammatical session here. Um, I loved language arts and grammar in school, so I'm going to take you into the English classroom for just a moment, so please come with me. This is considered, and this is actually a classification of a, a verb. Um, according to one of my favorite scholars in, in the Greek arena, uh, Daniel Wallace. Um, I, I, at first, I didn't like his books because I was forced to read them in college. And then I found the, the, um, really the value in doing that, but uh, did take some time to acclimate. The book was about this thick. Um, all about tenses and, and so forth and, and uh, the different parts of the Greek language. So... He says that this is a divine passive, which really is pretty easy to understand, where God is the subject, and the sinners are the ones who are being saved by God. In other words, the construction in the original Greek, it comes through very nicely here in the English as well, um, means that God is the one doing this act, not the one who is the, the um, recipient of that salvation. Now also, all right, so that deals with the voice of the verb, the, the divine passive. So God is the one who is doing it. We are the one who are receiving it. But there's also an idea of tense. And this, this verb, I'm uh, speaking of, by grace, you have been saved." This verb is in the perfect tense, meaning that the action is complete. So For us as believers, this happened at that moment of regeneration where we placed our faith in Jesus. We were saved at that moment. In that moment, our salvation was done, right? We were completely saved. But not only that, the action is complete, but in the perfect tense, it has continuing results even to this present time. What does that mean? Well, this salvation was complete at the moment of conversion, but that the saved one is being continually kept by the grace of God. And, you know, we can get, I love the language and stuff and and diving deep into it, but let's not forget the main point of what Paul is getting here. And I love, this is um, one of my favorite commentators on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, I, I kind of geek out over the book of Ephesians because, we had an opportunity to, through school, we translated this book. I was introduced to part of the book. I was introduced to a commentator, Harold Honer, and his commentary is about this thick. It was a life's work for him. And uh, he just puts things so plainly. He says, it is the God behind the perfect tense that guarantees the future deliverance. Uh, I don't know what that is. I'm going to go ahead and plug the, the, um, the pulpit mic in so that we don't have any more pops. So... Um, if we can switch over to that. Um, you guys got me here? Cool. So um, God is the one who is uh, performing that work. And he's continuing that work even to this day where he's keeping us. And he's, um, he's working in us and he's, he's conforming us into his image. That salvation, it was effective in our conversion but He still keeps us to this day. I can't, think, I can't help to think of but what if Paul says in Philippians 1, chapter 6. He's going to complete the work that He began in us in the day of Christ. Now, Paul continues on here uh, in verse 6. Um, he says, "...and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." We literally have been resurrected, well not literally, spiritually have been resurrected from the dead, but we have also been given a new locale. We are no longer citizens of this world, but we are citizens of the the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Our new citizenship is in heaven where Christ is. Our location has changed from being dead in the world to being alive in the heavenlies with Christ. We have relocated. And Christ in the coming ages will continue to reveal to us the depth and the riches of his grace to us. Did you catch that? In verse seven, in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How much more now that we have been saved do we have an understanding of God's grace and his love and his care and his compassion for us? But in the ages to come, when you think about eternity, and we're going to go be with the Lord, we're going to be transformed, we're going to live with Him forever. In the years, in the ages to come, however many that is, eternity, billions and billions and billions, the Lord's going to teach us more about His grace. He's going to teach us. He's going to reveal to us the depths. He's going to keep peeling back layers of his goodness and his kindness toward us to where we will be students of his grace in the ages to come. That's almost unfathomable to think. You know, to a degree, we think we have a grasp of God's grace. And in a sense, we do. We understand to a degree the grace, but the depth of the grace of God and the depth of the love of God, we will continue to learn. In the ages to come, we will learn and experience more deeply the reality of his grace and his kindness as we worship and live with him for eternity. You see, we have tasted and seen that God is good, and we are beneficiaries of his mercy and grace, and we will be students of his grace for the ages to come. His love and his grace is that vast. Spurgeon says this When all the saints shall be gathered home, they shall still talk and speak of the wonders of Jehovah's love in Christ Jesus. And in the golden streets, they shall stand up and tell what the Lord has done for them to listening crowds of angels and principalities and powers. God's love and grace for us is that vast, it's incomprehensible. And as we move on into verses 8 and 9, Paul again repeats to make it clear, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's pretty clear here in the English, it's clear in the original language. Salvation is not accomplished by man. Though we have such clear instruction in this, not only here, I think this is one of the most clear that we have. People attempt to weasel themselves back in to the salvation process. Where we have some part, we must do something in order to attain the approval and the salvation of God. Whether that's a a proponent of salvation through water baptism or some people will say, well if you don't speak with a gift of tongues you're not really a Christian and that is you have to speak the gift of tongues in order to be a Christian or or maybe having your good outweigh your bad you know there's um, there's those who still teach today that um, <laughs> you have to keep the law you got to keep it or you're not really a Christian you're not saved but this is not the teaching of scripture and this is, Looking within ourselves to find some merit in order to please the Lord. It's by grace. Grace carries the idea of it being a gift. A gift is not earned, it is given. A gift is not a a reward, it is received, not based on any merit. And he says, Listen, it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Rest assured, if we could find a way to save ourselves, we would be proud of it. (laughs) We would be proud of ourselves. Look at what we have done. Look at where we were. And just think of the context of what Paul is talking about here. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. We would be patting ourselves on the back because we found a way and we made it through. But, But that's not the case. It's not by works, lest anyone should boast. Because our boast is in who? It's in Jesus. Our boast is in the one who has saved us, not in ourselves. Salvation is the gift of God. Scripture is clear about this. Grace is received through faith. John, um, Jesus, in in talking, um, I, I can't remember the conversation exactly, but he talks about the work of God unto salvation. And that work of God, he says, is belief. And so if we think in terms of work, the work that God requires of us in order to be saved is trust, is faith in him. That is the work of God unto salvation. That's not something that uh, we can earn in and of ourselves. It's something that we receive through our trust in Jesus. Not anything that we could earn. So God has shown his, his rich mercy toward us. We were once dead We've been made alive, and we've been saved by His grace. And the Lord didn't stop there. In verse 10, He says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are the workmanship of Christ. We're His masterpiece. His work of salvation is a masterpiece that He has meticulously constructed. Now, we are not saved by good works, but a purpose for which we have been saved and created anew in Christ is this, that we should walk in the good works that Christ has prepared for us to walk in. God has given us opportunity to serve him. We who, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve our salvation, let alone to put our hands on holy things that God wants us to serve him, to to go out and do things for him. Yeah, and he's created these works before we even had a a pulse beat toward him. So, we have been given a purpose in Christ. and As we looked at last week, we need to be good stewards of what God has given us, the gifts that he's given. And My encouragement to you is to serve God with all your might. It is an appropriate response for us to walk in the purpose for which we were resurrected and created anew in Christ. Walk in the good works that God has created for you. Look for those good works that God has prepared for you to walk in. And as God prompts you to serve him in maybe a certain ministry function or to extend mercy to somebody in need, if he leads you to be a pastor or missionary, whatever it looks like, whatever those works are, be faithful to do what God calls you to do. He's got work for you and me to do. Let's be busy about his work because God has been so good to us. so our way of living has completely changed our former way of life we lived and worked for the prince of the power of the air we lived according to what seemed best to us according to the course of the world we lived in the lusts of our flesh but now we live and work for the redeemer of our souls who's extended his love and mercy to us Many have the perception that God is a grumpy, spiteful, graybeard waiting to punish the smallest infraction. Yeah, God is a righteous God who will justly dispense His wrath. There's no doubt about that. He judges sin. There's no doubt about that. But God is abundant in mercy. And His loving kindness endures Forever. I have a few encouragements. First, if you are a believer, consider how God has transformed your life. Consider how He's transformed your life. You were once dead in your sins and trespasses, but you have been resurrected with Christ. You have new life in Him, you have been saved by grace. And as Paul said, we are his workmanship, his masterpiece, something beautiful that he has created. And we have been given works to do in service to him. We can never repay God for what he's done for us. But, as Paul says in Romans 12, it is appropriate. It is reasonable worship for us. To lay down our lives as living sacrifices for him. To be used and directed at his will and desire. We cannot repay him for his kindness and mercy, but we can respond appropriately by laying our lives down in worship and service to him. See, God has given us purpose as his beloved children. Be good stewards of what he's given you and serve him with your life. And give no provision for the flesh, the old way of living. Pursue those heavenly things and not those earthly things. And perhaps you need to be encouraged that God isn't finished with you. If God has gone to such lengths to save we who were his enemies, and he's brought you this far, he's not going to leave you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. There are times where we will grieve the Lord. We will grieve the Spirit of God because we walk in in times of disobedience. Maybe you have stumbled, but it is by grace you have been saved, and it is by God's grace that you can be restored. It's not by your works, it's not by your efforts to get back into a right standing with God. You know, the enemy a lot of times gets us to think that, all right, we know and we understand we're saved by grace, but I still need to earn God's favor. I still need to earn God's approval with the way that I'm living. Now, God does care how we're living. He wants us to live in a way that honors and glorifies Him. But God loves you. And He wants you to walk in holiness with Him, but... You can't earn his approval. He loves you because you're his. He's redeemed you. So rest in that confidence. God did not withhold his own son to save us. His grace is sufficient. And when we have those moments of weakness, he knows our frame. He was tempted like we were. He knows what we face day in and day out. And he has compassion on us. What is our part in that? Well, we are to confess our sin and receive forgiveness and be amazed at His love and grace. The worship team can come forward. Perhaps God has convicted you of the way you have been living now. And maybe you are a believer, but you have strayed so far in your walk with the Lord. You've been saved, but you have compromised and you have dabbled in the former way of life. I give the same encouragement. Confess your sin to God and ask him to revive you in his ways. Come receive the mercy of God afresh. You know, my mind goes to the prodigal son and the father. What a beautiful picture there because God, like in that picture, he is waiting for you to return to him as the father waited expectantly for the prodigal son to return. He longs to embrace you and celebrate your return home. Hear the call of the Lord, come back. Turn to the Lord and receive his forgiveness. The Lord wants to show you his mercy and grace afresh. And if you are not a Christian, if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, if you have not believed upon him in faith, as we've read about in this passage... That he took your sin on the cross and rose three days later. Consider the charges against your account. You see, without believing in Jesus, you are still caught in the snare of your sins. You are at opposition to God. And you are under his wrath. This means that if you were to die before confessing Jesus as Savior, you would spend an eternity apart from him. Separated from the one who is life. And you would be in perpetual torment. A righteous judgment from a righteous God for your sins. But hear the word of the Lord to you. The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. turn from the worthless things of the world. Receive his mercy in Christ Jesus. And if you have that moment of clarity right now, yield to the Lord. You're not guaranteed another moment of clarity like this. If you sense that that overwhelming need to be saved, then ask God to save you. Romans 10.13 is a promise that we have for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you do confess, then being dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, being under the wrath of God, this too can be your former life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work That you have saved us according to your mercy. According to the great love with which you have loved us. Who are you that you'd be mindful of us? Yet you would descend to us? You would take our sin upon yourself? You are majestic. Amazing. You are love. You are our salvation, our redeemer. We give thanks. Forgive us for the ways that we have erred. Draw us in close to you. Help us to recognize our need for you. Our inability to earn your approval. Help us to rest in the salvation that is by grace through faith.